uh, with us. So I'm grateful to be able to preach this morning. I don't get to do this a lot. I'm usually over here at this other mic. So to be here and be able to uh, look into a, a, an important passage this morning is a great privilege. We are starting, we're in the middle of our 40 days of faith, our Lenten journey together. And I hope that the devotionals have been helpful for you as we look at these fruits of agape, what it looks like when we give ourselves to the agape love of God, what will come out? There has to be fruit on the other side of that if we give ourselves and we submit ourselves to that. Um, I do want to reiterate that we do have printed copies of the devotional guide, and that is available there in the lobby. I think it's right over here on the right, my right, your left, as you go out the door. So uh, pick up one if you need one of those. There's also digital copies uh, online on our blog and through the church app. So lots of ways to stay connected with what we're looking at week in and week out. Last week, Charles preached on resilience. When, God, when God's agape love so fills us, he preached that we live from a center of knowing our worth rooted in the cross of Christ and not pulling our identity and our worth from the things that the world wants us to consider, like our education, our background, the way we look, our jobs. Those are things that do not define us, do not tell us of our worth. It's God's ex uh, inclusive and radical love that we see in the cross of Christ. And this morning, I want us to look at the fruit of inclusivity. This is not a most obvious fruit. I feel like it's probably one of the least sexiest fruits on the tree, if you will. It's not one that people go around saying, Lord, just please make me more inclusive. And if you are that person, this sermon may, need, may, may not be for you this morning, but most of us, I think it takes a lifetime to grow this fruit in us, to realize that we've become insular and closed off when it comes to the extravagant love of God. I think this is because it goes against our intuition and our bias. You know, whenever we discover something in life that's so personal and so special to us, like our faith, it tends to lose that special quality about it when everybody else discovers it too. They start living out the same thing. It doesn't really feel as personal maybe anymore. I think about like a unique pair of shoes. Anybody out there? When you see people start wearing those shoes, you feel like, okay, it's not so special anymore. And it may be kind of petty, but I feel like maybe this is how Christians have approached faith over the years, more like an exclusive club that's staffed with gatekeepers and bouncers at the door than this extravagant call to the public for any and all, no matter who you are. And when love and the church and Christianity begins to look like that, I firmly believe that it grieves Jesus. It runs counter to the entire enterprise of faith rooted in sacrificial love. It really flies in the face of the message of the cross. And that's why I feel like it's important to talk about. So anybody Googling our church these days or Googling an inclusive, affirming church in Manhattan will have our church pop up likely on the top of that list. And we're grateful for that. Many of you have expressed that you're here because of that. On our homepage, you might have noticed these words. What it means to be a contemporary, fully inclusive church in Manhattan. 
what it means to be a contemporary, fully inclusive church in Manhattan. And why inclusive? Why that word? What makes that word so essential to have this place on our banner and our byline, even when it can be so divisive in our world and certainly in our churches these days? And what we're really wanting to know, and maybe what I'm wanting to know in that question, is whether Christianity, true Christianity, can remain an exclusive insular club and still look like Jesus. That's what I want to explore. And I want to do that by looking at a story in the book of Acts, chapter 8. It's a story probably you're familiar with. It's the story of Philip and the eunuch. The book of Acts is really the gospel of Acts because what Luke is doing in Acts is really a continuation of what Luke started in the third of the four gospels. That's why many call it Luke-Acts. In Acts, God is doing something I see even more radical as we move our way through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We get to Acts and we see that in some ways it's even new as the early church begins to expand its presence throughout the known world. And in Acts, the disciples are being sent out to share this good news of Jesus Christ, and Philip was one of those that was doing this good work. And I want us to read this passage beginning in verse 26. It says, Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and he went. I find this to be a strange opening. We have the Spirit of the Lord saying to Philip, Philip, get up. I want you to go south on a road that leads to nowhere, out in the middle of nowhere, and I'm not going to tell you why. Just get up and go. And it struck me, and I think it has, um, many people have commented on this part of the story, that it sounds a lot like Noah, right? Jonah, sorry, not Noah. Noah's a different story. It sounds a lot like Jonah. The prophet Jonah, do you remember that God says, Jonah, get up, go to the Ninevites and tell them this radical story of grace and love that I have for those people. And what does Jonah do? Jonah turns and goes the other way. Jonah has made up in his mind that this is not surely a gospel that belongs to those people. This is an exclusive gospel. I think he kind of had a racist worldview, which is what I want to challenge for us today. But I think that Luke had that story in mind when he writes this opening, and he says for Philip that he just got up and went right away. And continuing in verse 27, now there is an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. I want us to just pause there for a minute and notice a couple things that I think are significant. Here we have a high official of the Candace, the court of the queen. He would have been esteemed in this position in what was a fairly sizable kingdom, not some podunk little thing, just south of Egypt and near modern-day Sudan, probably a little bit south of that. And this was not some backwoods setup that he's representing here. He would have been recognized and really esteemed anywhere he went in the empire. 
And in a moment, we'll read as we go a little bit further that he's riding by chariot. That's no small detail. Anybody going around by chariot these days? This is somebody that had really high social significance and respect. And I think Luke wants us to know that. Another thing to note is that it wasn't unusual for eunuchs to hold such positions in the court or really for men to become eunuchs by choice so that they could hold offices such as this. And I want to say that that is a rough way to earn a job, so <laughs> there has to be a different way. But we aren't told for sure this particular eunuch, uh, how he became so, but what we know of antiquity is that kings and queens would employ eunuchs in their court because they would be able to give a level of dedication and commitment to the job um, obviously, eunuchs would not be able to procreate in the natural ways, and so they were less likely to have a family that would divide their attention. So they were really sought out, these eunuchs, to hold positions such as this. They would be able to wed themselves to their job without that extra distraction of having a family. Yet because of their anatomy, because of their body, they were seen in a very confusing way in the eyes of society. You see, they didn't fit the usual mold of what it means to be a man in Roman and Greek culture, which was really based on your role in sexual relationships. So many scholars have pointed out how certain laws and protections would not be extended to them because they didn't fit neatly into these categories of hierarchy. And by definition, what I love about eunuchs is that they were querying the societal norms, if I can use that word in a verb, they were challenging these traditional conceptions of what it was to be a man in early Greek and Roman culture. So this eunuch goes to Jerusalem because he wants to worship God among God's people. But he's being pulled between these two worlds, one in which he was highly esteemed in this notable, notable position, but one where he probably lacked any real community where he felt a sense of belonging. Society didn't know what to do with him. He likely did not have a family to go back home to. And if you know anything about Old Testament and temple worship, he would have traveled all that way in his chariot only to be denied at the doors. See, what he didn't know is that he, he could show up in that official chariot wearing his official garb, carrying that high social status, and they would say, you cannot belong here as a eunuch, as a Gentile. See, Gentiles don't get to worship in the temple. You see here on the bottom right, they have to stay all the way out here on these outer court, uh, edges of the court. It's the court of the Gentiles, about as far as you can get from the center. And Gentile eunuchs especially had no chance to worship inside the, gen, uh, inside the temple. And this for the eunuch was not just because he was a Gentile. According to the law in Leviticus 21, no man can gain inclusion into the Jewish community if he had damaged testicles. That's a real thing. Look it up. And this would have been the case for the eunuch. So in the eyes of the law, they would have been seen and categorized as defective. That's the word that is used. The eunuch's body alone would disqualify him from inclusion because he could not pass one of two qualifications. And the first 
is circumcision, which he could not do, and the second is baptism. Now, he could do something about baptism, but he was completely hopeless in that first requirement. So not only could he not enter the temple because he was a Gentile, he would have been told that you could never, ever, ever become one of us. There's nothing you can do or gain or overcome, no obstacle you can climb over or change that you can make in your life to become part of the people of God because of your body, because of who you are. And we have to assume all these things because the story really picks up with him going away from the temple. And I picture him riding in that chariot, devastated. The high official of the court of the Queen of Ethiopia probably had never faced resistance in all his life, now being turned away. This person of high esteem in the eyes of society now being labeled an outsider and pushed to the bottom of the pile. I was thinking this week that I wonder if the temple officials would have made an example of him as they sent him out of town and turned him away. Would they have done it loud enough so everybody would know to reinforce that the holiness and unwavering righteousness of an almighty high God would not be swayed in this law, that there would be no changes made but I thought this week that the God that we see in Jesus Christ also wants to make an example of this eunuch. And so enters Philip. In verse 29, we pick back up. It says, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he replied, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb silent before its shear, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask, does this prophet say? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip began to speak, and starting with the scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As the eunuch is going away from Jerusalem, I picture him kind of dejected and hunched over this scroll of Isaiah and probably reading words that he had read over and over again many times. In fact, probably these words that led him to want to go to Jerusalem in the first place. But now being cast out and now hearing it for himself, I picture him just bewildered as he again reads about this suffering servant who's denied and humiliated and ultimately killed in front of everyone at the hands of the religious leaders in the state. There's something, obviously, that resonates with him. And so he asked Philip, does the prophet say this about himself or does he say this about someone else? And you could almost hear a desperation in his voice in that question. I imagine he's thinking, please say there is hope for me. Please tell me 
that this person represents a true reality, that there is one who sympathizes with my situation, who himself was outcast, and who knows what it's like to be humiliated and receive the ultimate display of public denial. And Philip, sitting right next to him there in the chariot, shares the good news about Jesus. It's a message of radical inclusion. It's a message of unconditional community and belonging. And where there was denial, there is welcome in Christ. And I don't want us to miss this point this morning. The movement of the Spirit is always in and toward marginalized people. It is against the oppressor and always sides with the oppressed. We cannot look at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and see it any other way. So Philip and the eunuch are looking together now at this scroll of Isaiah in, in chapter 53, which is where that text is situated. And I undoubtedly, Philip would have turned his attention to Isaiah 56. Listen to these words in verses 4 and 5. It says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. The movement of the Spirit of God is always in and toward marginalized people. Regardless of the boundaries and the obstacles that we set up to keep them at arm's length and on the outside. God says in this passage, I will give them a place within my house, a place within my walls. I will give them a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. We think about this story in Acts chapter 8. This is not some outlier to the rule. This is how the whole movement of the early church begins. This is the model. This is really the first story that starts on fire the whole movement. So this would become the norm about who is in and who is out when it comes to God's kingdom. Not some side project or some exception to the rule that it would be good if we just added this little footnote here. Or maybe if we just diversify our image, it'll look good in our business portfolio. No, this is the very heartbeat, the center of the gospel of Christ. And as you move through the rest of the story in Acts, you'll notice one thing over and over. As Gentiles become uh, included into the community of faith, it says that they went on their way rejoicing, just as a eunuch would. This is how we know that the Spirit's work was at Uh, The Spirit's power was at work in all of this. You see, the temple leaders had the position to keep the eunuch physically outside the fellowship of God's people. But it was the Spirit's power that overcame the boundaries that we humans often create. I love how the Chicago pastor, Otis Moss III, challenged black Christians and the marginalized to focus on the real source of liberation by not confusing position with power. And he said this, Pharaoh had a position, but Moses had the power. The cross had a position, but Jesus had the power. Abraham Lincoln had a position, but Woodrow, but Frederick Douglass had the power. Woodrow Wilson had a position, but Ida B. Wells had the power. George Wallace had a position, but Rosa Parks 
had the power. Lyndon Baines Johnson had a position, but Martin Luther King had the power. We have the power, don't you ever forget it. There's no status, there's no position or orientation that can keep a person from inclusion in the liberating reality of God. I believe that. Verse 36, the eunuch asked the question, what is to prevent me from being baptized? After hearing the good news of Jesus, the eunuch was asking this question, I think, just as much as he was making a statement. What is to prevent me? You can hear in his voice, after hearing about this gospel of liberation, what he was really was saying was, given the reality of the cross of Christ that I'm reading about here, and Isaiah prophesied in the book of Isaiah, given the promise of a name better than sons and daughters, is there anything that can prevent me from inclusion in the community of faith? And the answer from Philip, and certainly the answer from me, is no. And in verse 38 it says, he commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. The text isn't entirely clear here, so I, I imagine it's Philip who stops the chariot. Philip was more than ready to confirm physically what the spirit had already been doing in the heart of the eunuch for some time. And I, I love this story because of how vague it is. Out in the middle of nowhere, this dusty road in the desert. One time that Philip says, there's a body of water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? Nobody knows what the body of water is. All of those details are insignificant. It's almost like it happens instantaneously. Um, and as a side note, it, it's, it's really fascinating in this book. Um, probably you even see in the scripture that it skips over verse 37. In the original manuscripts, it doesn't include verse 37. That goes from 38 to 30, I'm sorry. Let's see, it includes, yeah, it goes from 36 to 38 without um, doing 37. 37 was added much later as a statement of faith that the eunuch had to first make in order for baptism to become real or a possibility. But really in this story, it's happening so fast and in such a general way that I think it applies any and everywhere. It speaks of the radical nature of what is happening. As I revisited the church homepage here at the river, it struck me odd at first that we use that term fully inclusive. And I thought to myself, why don't we just say inclusive? I mean, inclusive is inclusive, isn't it? And the more I thought about it, I realized that it's really not. It's a shame that churches in our time have to fully qualify it here to make clear what we're really after. Because you could say that there was some inclusion for Gentiles in this whole experience. If you look at the picture again, you are technically inside the gate. You've made it through the doors. Your name has been put on the attendance record. You're on the email list. A seat has been saved for you at the back of the room. And in some world, this could be inclusive, but it's not radically so. 
It's not fully inclusive. And to me, there's a significant difference. Radical signals intentionality. Radical is active, and it looks like Jesus. You see, people don't want a courtyard on the outer perimeter. They want community at the center. People don't want mere entrance. They long for engagement. People don't want a well-meaning invitation. They want full and unconditional inclusions. Full stop, no questions asked. In closing, I wonder if this is our brand of Christianity here at River Church. And I think we are well on our way. And I sure hope so, because according to our homepage, that phrase that you'll see, what it means to be a contemporary, fully inclusive church in Manhattan, is saying that we are the model. It's saying when you look at River Church, this is the way that it should look. And does it? What do we have to learn? I wonder if radical inclusivity is the lens through which you see your world on your day-to-day basis as you go to work, in your family, as you encounter strangers in this city. And when we have been so filled with the reality of God's agape love, how can any other message than this radical inclusion spill out of us? So may it be so. Let's pray together. God, we want to acknowledge that in the history of our Christian fellowship here at River Church, we have overcome so much to get us to where we are today. Learning how to open our doors wider and wider really learning what it means to be inclusive, really throwing our arms open in a radical way. And that is a process of learning. And we know the pains of that process. We look back at our even our recent history and how it divided the church, this message of inclusion. We also know that the radical nature of your word of liberation wants us to always go further and further, to have no boundaries, to have no obstacles standing between the Spirit's power and liberation. So teach us what that looks like. Teach us the ways that we need to grow. Open up new avenues in our ministry, new ways of seeing a wider gaze, wider circles. That's our prayer. And we pray in your Son's power through the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let me remind you that we have the prayer team standing.